listening to the Arise Church podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. looked at an abstract piece of art, some uh, painting or uh, a digital image, and the first thing that came to your mind, if you're honest, is what in the world were they thinking? (laughs) At first glance, it just seems like a repeated uh, but chaotic pattern most of the time. And oftentimes, they're framed in such a way that forces you to stop and take a good look at them. The text that we're going to spend our time in today is that kind of a frame, or it's it's that kind of a picture, and it's placed in a frame that demands our attention. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, we have a portrait of the church, but it's framed this way. Acts 3 to 5 act like a frame for our text, On the top, you have the healing of the lame beggar that we talked about in our gospel communities. And on one side, there's Peter's sermon before the people that follows it, and it leads to thousands of new conversions a second time. But it also leads to that other side of the frame where persecution comes upon the apostles, and they are taken captive and imprisoned. So on that third side, you see Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin, along with the lame beggar, after being commanded to preach no longer in the name of Jesus and boldly saying to them, you judge for yourselves whether or not it is right for us to continue to speak in this name. But as for us, we will not stop speaking of what we've witnessed and what we saw. And then there's this bottom section that we're going to discuss in our gospel communities next week of the frame, which would just be the beginning of chapter 5, the religious hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. That is what frames this portrait of the church. All of this is meant to point our attention to the beautiful picture that God is painting of his unstoppable kingdom manifested in the life of spirit-filled and transformed people who make up a new community. The thing about this portrait, though, is that it takes new eyes to see and to appreciate. It takes a new heart. Join me in Acts chapter 4 as we read from verses 31 down to 37. And let's see if we can't pick up on what God is painting before us. Acts 4, verse 31 reads this way. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, 
Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. One of the things you can't miss about this picture of the early church and this narrative of what life was like and what's being described to us in the book of Acts is how much of a corporate mindset they had. They had a corporate mindset. Their first instinct was fellowship and partnership and sharing and togetherness and love and care. Right out of the gate, they stood by one another's side. If we were to look at chapter 4, verse 14, just a few verses above, it says that as Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin, the people are recognizing them as untrained men who are not, by any stretch of the imagination, the religious elite who should have such power working through them to perform a miracle and then such confidence and boldness to go and stand before them and to uh, refute them. And it says that they wanted to throw them in jail and they wanted to kill them. They wanted to rid the earth of them. But what does verse number 14 say? Since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Peter and John have been thrown in jail for causing a commotion. The man who was once a lame beggar laying at the gate was standing there with them. Out of the gate, even when there's trouble, the Spirit of God creates a new family of people who cannot see themselves saying, that's none of my business. The lame beggar is standing beside them even as they're being challenged by the Sanhedrin. It just shows me, again, the first instinct uh, is fellowship and partnership, and they shared the highs and the lows with one another. And when it was time to seek the Lord, they did so together, right? They prayed together. They didn't view the church through the Western eyes of uh, individualism like you and I do. See, here's the deal. We love independence. And I'm not above that. You and I are not above that. And when I say independence, I'm not talking about freedom. I'm talking about solo. We love the individual nature. That's just the, 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 the culture that we're raised in. We can attend church services every week, week after week, sit next to people that we don't know and have no desire to get to know them. Be content to never get to know them, actually. You know how sad it is that many Christians don't have any meaningful fellowship throughout the week? Throughout the course of the week, there's no belonging together with the people that we understand. The gospel actually makes us family. I think it's a must that when we look at a text like this, we regain and refocus the sense of corporate community that was lost on us in the West. Especially as hostility grows. I'm talking about in America, I'm talking about in Ventura, I'm talking about in your neighborhood, I'm talking about on your jobs and in your families. As hostility grows, and there is a consistent kind of wave of pushing back on the gospel and Christian things, and as days get darker and even persecution arises, I think we need deep-seated convictions for the necessity of belonging together and being part of a functional body without whom we're no better off than a dismembered limb, lifeless. You cannot do it alone. You and I need to be intertwined with brothers and sisters, with a family that we immediately want to give 
uh, or get together with if something's going on or connect with or we are reaching out to and we're, we see ourselves as a part of them even when difficulty hits us so that we can share and we can pray together and we can bear burdens. Newsflash, we have arranged the way we gather in our church in such a way that it will be hard for you to belong to a rise and that not be a priority. And the reason why is because we really believe that God is calling us to get back to the basics. I said back in September, standing really right here, we were inside on Labor Day. It was only a few of us here. I just said, if we cannot be the church in, the, in its simplest form, we will never be able to be the church in its most complex form. And so we're committed to that. Your elders and leaders are committed to that, and we're inviting everyone into it. But I want us to look at this picture again, the portrait that God is painting for us in the new covenant with unmistakable repetition. If you read Acts chapter 4 with me just there, or even if you just listened to it, you realize it actually sounds like the end of chapter 2. It's the same almost word for word as what was said about the church when it was birthed in chapter 2. And as we look at this passage, what I want us to see is what I think God intends for us to see through the repetition of constantly bringing us back to that point. He wants his church to be this church. This is who God desires for us to be. And so look, look back at our text. In verses 32 to 37, I want us to identify really quickly four unstoppable characteristics of corporate community. These are things that we desperately need. The first one, when you look at verse number 32, says now the entire group or all of them, everybody, were of one heart and they were of one soul. If you're taking notes, the church was deeply unified. This is unity. The first thing it says is united in heart. This is more of an emotional bond. The idea of being united in heart, if you think about your heart, it's where your desires and where your intentions lie. This is the, uh, the, the part of you that is deep down inside. This is where your passions come from. This is where uh, your pleasure comes from. This is where your purpose comes from. It says that they were united in heart. They wanted to see the same things come about, and they were committed to bringing it about. They were committed to working together in order to bring it about. When the Spirit of God is at work in a community, in a local church, whether it's 55 people like it is about right here or 5,000 people like it was at that time. Strangers had just become family. People who had come from other countries, remember? You had people from everywhere that all of a sudden they became one. Doesn't matter how big it was, the Holy Spirit implants in us a deep desire that energizes us to endeavor towards the same things. That's what it means to be united in heart. And I think it's important to say that the Spirit of God actually energizes His people to endeavor the same things with joy. It's not a laborious thing. It's not something where it's like, you're trying to force that on me. All of them were united in heart. But if you were reading with me, you saw they also united in soul, right? It says united in soul. So they had a spiritual bond. And we see that in action, that the spiritual bond through prayer. When they, in verse uh, number 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together and said, they prayed together. They lifted up one voice to God in prayer. A spiritual bond, a deep spiritual bond. This is a firm theological commitment to God and to one another. 
Sometimes we believe that in order to have this kind of spiritual bond, we have to agree on every little issue, secondary issue and third tier things and all kinds of stuff, how to meet and where to go and all those different things. But nothing could be further from the truth. The root of this word is actually where we get our word psyche or psych, right? Or psychology or psychiatry. That's why some of your Bibles actually would translate the word not soul, but mind. That's the mind and the soul being synonymous. The mind and soul are the seat of your affections and the seat of your will. To be united in soul like they were is to say that our feelings and our emotions about Jesus and the gospel are the same. Our sentiment towards God is one and the same. At the center of all of our consciences lies a heartfelt sentiment of gratitude for what God has done for us together. See, one of the things that we lost, and I think that's lost on us in the Western church, is that there's this big idea of a personal relationship with Jesus that somehow kind of disengages you from a corporate relationship with Jesus. He brought us together as one. He saved, and even as people were getting saved here, we're talking about thousands at a time. There was never a time where they just kind of were all by themselves. Now, I know that's some of our story. I know people read the Bible and nobody's around, and God takes the scale off of their eyes, and they're converted and filled with the Holy Ghost that day. But the truth of the matter is, even in that, he joins them together with the body. Yeah, that's good. We become the body of Christ. When you have unity of soul, you can't imagine breaking fellowship with your brothers and sisters over preferences and personalities. That's the point. They were united in heart and in soul. There's also kind of this unity of purpose. I think when it says they had all things in common or they held everything in in common no one says that any of the things that belonged to him was his own right they had a physical bond it wasn't just spiritual it wasn't just like oh god bless you brother you know <laughs> how you doing sister oh man that's tough that's rough i'm sorry to hear that and carrying on my business it was actually like hey you know what what i who i am and what i have doesn't belong to me it's all yours that was the mindset y'all this is what unity truly is. This is why we don't stop talking about unity around here. Because I think that if God unites us together and disciples us to understand who we are being changed and transformed to be, all that other stuff is going to come together. Yeah. I'm trying to tell you. I won't have to uh, even think up a, a, a program or a meeting or whatever. It'll just be happening all over the place because of what? God is stimulating us. And he's, he has you thinking about your brothers and sisters. We don't have to talk about the specific needs and so on and so forth. John Stott says this. I, I wrote this quote down. John Stott, he says, although in fact and in law they did have and continue to own their own goods, in their heart, in their mind, their soul, they cultivated an attitude that was so radical that they thought of their possessions as being available to help all of their needy sisters and brothers. So they didn't think of what they had as for them. Right. They thought of their possessions as that which it was given to them to help their brothers and sisters. That's unity of purpose. And I think that that comes because grace is alive in the church. That's the second point. They were a community of grace. Look at verse number th uh, 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection and great grace was upon them all. Here we have another set of our thesis words. Let's not forget what is Acts about. 
It is about the kingdom of God that is unstoppable. There's a thesis. There's right at the beginning. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, you will have great power come upon you, right? That the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses. Acts 4 here, Luke is telling his friend Theophilus, when he looks out at the church, he said, there was great power and great testimony. Same word for witness. It's the exact same Greek word. The idea is, hey, exactly what God said would happen was happening among them. And because of that, grace was on everybody, not just the apostles, y'all. It says grace was upon them all. And it doesn't just say grace. It says great grace, abundant and in numerous ways. Here's the idea of grace or what the word should, uh, when we think of grace, here's what we should be hearing. That they were favorable towards and leaning towards. They were disposed to bless. That's what it means to be gracious. This was a community that was disposed to bless one another. They were favorable towards one another. Barry is here. Barry would always tell us, lean in, right? That was one of the things he loved to talk about, leaning in. They leaned into one another. What a beautiful picture of a community. Grace is that free extension of favor. It doesn't cost you anything. In fact, you can't even pay for it or buy it. If, you, if you're with me, you're thinking about the gospel right now. That free extension of favor that actually inclines you to another. And it's a disposition, meaning that's just my, like my, I'm predisposed to bless other people. This is the kind of community that's being described for us here. I think the reason there was such abundant grace present in their community is because they didn't stop testifying to the resurrection. You saw that, right? There was great power and there was great testimony going about the resurrection. Luke is showing us occasion after occasion where the apostles are proclaiming it and the community is practicing it. Life and lips. The resurrection has given this whole community new life. <laughs> This is a new community. They, they do not think in the dead old ways of the past. They now consider themselves as new and renewed. Yeah. The resurrection is preached and practiced powerfully among this community. And therefore, there is great grace among them. But what about the third thing? Verse number 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands and houses. They sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold. The third thing is just plain. They loved one another. And I'm not talking about warm feelings. <laughs> they loved one another. They loved one another by caring for the needs of all. Don't miss it. And this was a sacrificial care. People who had houses, land, sold them and brought them. Think long and hard about this. Don't miss this. Think long and hard about this. What does it look like to, from your own initiative, decide to sell your property and donate the proceeds in order that none of your brothers and sisters will go without? Is this hard to conceive? Thank you for your honesty. I think the more we have, the harder it can be. The more we love our possessions, the harder it will be to love people like that. And in the West, we have been uh, exposed to and received so much of an abundance. And we live, in, I mean, here we are 2,000 years, right, later. And in a country where there's so much at our disposal, in a world even, I mean, everywhere in the world, right? When I was in some East African countries, what blew my mind was the fact that 
everybody had a cell phone. And I'm talking about a smartphone. And it was like I couldn't go into a village in the bush where no, where a lot of people didn't have shoes without everybody asking for my Facebook. You understand what I'm saying? We have so much at our disposal, and the world has changed so much. And so I think that in some ways we just uh, we're hardened towards it. But I, my prayer is that God would uh, transform our thinking in some ways. Because I'm saying it's hard for us to conceive of this kind of activity among a community. I think God wants us to see it, though, and to imitate it. And what would we be imitating? Care for the needy that is sacrificial because of love. That is the gospel. The love of Christ, the gospel, the good news, and the care that comes from a community like that is, is so much just a picture of the gospel. And I think God wants us to be that kind of people where sacrificial generosity that the Holy Spirit creates, not me standing up here telling you what to do. The Holy Spirit is at work in a community. Because remember, verse 31, they prayed, the whole place was shaken, and they were filled with the Spirit and continued to speak with all boldness. God actually created this community. I think that God wants us to see that and desire that, and he wants to do that in you and I. And oftentimes what gets in the way of us being those kinds of people is our possessions. It's our predisposition to what we have. This love was preemptive. I think that was something that really struck me thinking about this week. Preemptive love is action that is taken as a, me a measure against something that is possible or that you think might happen, something that is anticipated or something that is to be feared. It doesn't appear to me, looking at this text, that they needed to know all the details before they would decide on whether or not they would actually contribute in this way. Did y'all follow that? This is preemptive love. This is something from a deep-seated desire in your heart. Because you love, then therefore you will care, even if it is a sacrifice to yourself. Somebody once asked, what is the definition of love? And I don't remember it by heart, but I remember it was something like, love is sacrificing for another and doing the best for them, even if at the highest cost to yourself. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. God is love. <laughs> and God did the best for you and I, even at the highest cost, yes, right. when yeah. Jesus went to the cross. Yeah. As a whole... This idea is that we are to call, a, I mean, we should see here that they took it upon themselves and it was their own initiative to operate this way. And as a whole, this community was radically generous and it wasn't coerced. It wasn't something that was, they were, they were pushed into, right? And in order to do that, I think that takes a certain level of surrender. That takes some real submission. You have to be surrendered to something that is so superior to your own personal security. And that's why, as, as we see, we actually have an example from verses 35 to 37 of yielding. That's the last point. They were a yielding community. Verse 35 pictures the entire church taking it upon themselves to reject independence and to reject individualism. Giving is one of the most tangible acts of surrender and submission. Giving your, not time, talent, treasure. We talk about that all the time. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about treasure. That's all we're talking about. Giving of your personal gain and possessions is one of the most 
tangible acts of surrender and submission to God. When we give out of our necessity to see the kingdom advance, to see the mission further, to see needs met, we make a bold statement about our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. We make a bold statement. This is how you say, not my will, but his, uh, his be done without opening your mouth. This is how you say that song we sang. My heart, make my heart your home without singing. If you really believe that, giving is one of the most tangible ways that we can show that we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit. We're surrendered to God, to Jesus. And it's not what I have. I feel like one of those song lyrics actually said it. I tried to remember it. I don't know the song. But we all just said it together. And, and let's not be like those who would say, I surrender all, right? But really should be saying some yeah. or most yeah. <laughs> at best. Like, let's be real. We're singing these things out of worship to Jesus. This is who we desire him to make us be even when we're not there, Amen. right? This is our ambition. Amen. I look at verse number 37 and I say, wow, Barnabas yielded to the spirit. Did he not? Yeah. What does verse 37 say to us? Sold a field he owned. Oh, my. Brought the money and put it at the apostles. He did that. Not coerced. This is an example. We'll talk more about him next week and about that next week. But here's what I want us to see. Barnabas was actually his nickname. His name was Joseph. But the mature people around him were inclined to give him a nickname because he was always doing things like that. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Encouraging stuff like that freely came from this man. What a beautiful picture. What an encouraging thing. And one thing I know to be true about us is when we read this through our Western lens, we cannot comprehend it. We actually can't barely grasp what's happening happening, or appreciate it. Jamie and I were recently walking through a gallery of fine art, and there were some really expensive paintings. This We stumbled upon this art gallery walking through the Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. And to capture your attention, they would be, they had, most of them have been placed in these really bold frames. Some bold in a good way, and I would say some bold, maybe not uh, <laughs> in a good way, not so much. But on several occasions, I would stop, and I would look at a painting, and I would be thinking, this makes no sense. Now, if you're listening to this, or you're reading this, and you're hearing about people like Barnabas, and all of the people, and the way they were selling their goods, and sharing their goods, and all, and you might be thinking, this makes no sense. Maybe it worked back then, but it would make no sense here. Yeah. I was walking through. This makes no sense. There's no way that this ugly picture would sell for tens of thousands of dollars. And then I would focus on the little card that was right next to it that you had to get close to. Painting. The name is 727. Art period. Contemporary. Artist. Takashi Murakami, a world-renowned J- Japanese artist. The description. There's a stylized wave that crashes across three panels of Murakami's 727, each of which features a mottled purple-blue background. In the center of the composition, a curious creature surfs the spray, its red eyes shining and spiky teeth revealed in a daring expression of glee. The figure's rotund form is framed by ear-like orbs emblazoned with the letters of its name, D.O.B., created by Murakami in 1993. Mr. D.O.B. was among the first in a pantheon of characters that inspire the culture of anime. 
and comics that emerged in Japan's post-war era and became wildly popular in the 1980s. All of a sudden, my eyes were open, y'all. Mm. All of a sudden, I could see it, and my heart was changed. This was truly a masterpiece. If only I had $24,000 for that. <laughs> to spend on a painting. What was paltry and plain became so precious and priceless in my sight. Why? Why is that? Once you come to know the author of a thing, you cannot deny its impact. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you come to appreciate it, you deeply desire to experience it. Is that not true? Looking back at our text, I'm saying that they were united together, and I want to be specific. They were united together by God in the gospel. He was the author of their unity. It wasn't just grace that characterized them, right? It was God's grace that was made manifest among them and working in powerful ways. God freely extends himself to us, does he not? And his favor, he inclines to people in order uh, to bless us. Why? Because he's disposed that way. That's just who he is. He's disposed towards his people to bless them. They loved one another because they had experienced the reckless love of God. Can you imagine it? All 5,000 of those people, they all had a past. They all had sins. Yeah. They all had shortcomings. And yet God had given them grace and forgiveness and loved them to the point of changing them. And giving them the Holy Spirit and the hope that we just talked about and the peace in soul and the reconciliation that we have with God through the gospel. God was the author of it. And they yielded to the Spirit in Jesus' name by prayer and by practice. It's mine? Not really. It's yours. Now, if you were taking notes and you're paying attention with me, U-G-L-Y. When you look down at this picture of the church, can you see an ugly reflection of yourself? Unity, grace, love, and yielding. Can you see it? <laughs> can you see it? You need fresh eyes to see it. You know why you need fresh eyes to see it? Because living in harmony and unity with people who look and speak and think and vote and act different than you is very unsightly to the world. Yeah. To give grace and extend mercy and compassion and to be quick to forgive, quick to forgive, yeah. are not qualities that are prized by today's culture. The world is not discipling you to be that way. Right. Unconditional love that sacrifices your own well-being, that's a sign of weakness in 2020, yeah. going into 2023. Right. Right. If you relinquish control and you give up security and you yield to the Spirit's lead, it might drain your savings just like it did for Barnabas and a lot of these others. And the people around you might say things like this. Things that have been said to me. You can't have any more kids, Steve. Four is too many. Well, what if you give that away? What are you going to have for yourself? The world is not painting a picture of this kind of life together in community. But God is. And God says what? This is to be greatly desired. I can assure you the things that may seem ugly in the sight of the world are beautiful in God's eyes. Amen. Amen. Not only is that church beautiful, 
reality is it's unstoppable.